Welcome to Buddha at the Caspo. My name is Rick Archer and I swear to God this is the last interview I'm going to do at the SAND conference because it's 10 o'clock at night and we're leaving in the morning. But I've been wanting to interview my friend T. Proctor here whom you may have already seen in the panel discussion that we did on embodiment and this is our last opportunity. So here we go. I think I'll ask you to just briefly introduce yourself first, whatever you feel is relevant and important in, the, in this context, and then we'll take it from there. Okay. My name is T, and that's my real name, so people often ask if it's T-E-E -E or T-E-A. It's, it's just T. It's plain old T. T. Jonathan Proctor, and that's my real name. That's not a taken on name. I live in Humboldt County, California, which is far north of California, mm -hmm. and we run a practice called Being Real, Being Embodied. I say we, I mean my partner Christine Fiorentino and I. We do uh, workshops, we do retreats, I do private sessions, Christine teaches yoga, and a big part of our practice is in the name, being embodied. What our focus is, is learning to experience life as a fully embodied, awakened being. Do you know any unembodied, awakened beings? You know, I think there have been quite a few, even here. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is a recurring theme. I interviewed somebody earlier in the conference who insisted that really she was not a person, there was no person, and so on. I wasn't quite quick on my toes enough, but I think my response might have been or should have been, of course you're a person, you're a wonderful person, you're a lovely mm -hmm. person, it's just that you're not only a person. Yeah. You know, you know there, there's many ways of looking at it, and I think that it can become kind of a classic circular argument. It's interesting, I see some parallels to Christian fundamentalism or certain fundamentalisms that say everything reverts back to the book and the book says this. <laughs> and so you can find books that say you're not a person. So you can find books that say you're not a person and then you can mimic those books. Uh, to be fair, I think that people experience that and I think that's an actual experience. And you know, you talk about Ken Wilber's states and stages a lot. Mm -hmm. Lines of development. And lines of development, right. There's such an unlimited amount of states that we can enter as a human being. And if we decide that's the place we want to park our ship, then we can get a lot of play out of that. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm experiencing right now that I'm not a person, but I'm also experiencing that I'm a person. Hmm. <laughs> and the, the two go together quite nicely. Yeah, well, it's been a pretty intense conference. I mean, the context <laughs> of this talk tonight is really amazing because we've been at this sand conference and there's just one thing after another after another mm. and there's all kinds of different perspectives and amazing people. Yeah, there's usually like five or six things going on at once that you might like to go to and, and they're all yeah. very interesting. You know, and that brings me actually back to the body and back to the need to, to take care of ourselves, to, mm -hmm. to regulate ourselves, to get Tell healthy food and rest. And that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very. And, uh, well, if you don't mind me saying, you know, you took some time off to, to do some meditation today. Oh, I always do. I mean, that's like bottom line. I haven't missed one in 46 years because yeah. I'm obsessive. <laughs> Yeah, you got to take care of the body. But this whole theme of not a person, maybe we should put it in context because um, maybe some of the people listening aren't aware that this is an issue. But there's a whole niche of the spiritual community, you know, the neo, it's, it's often referred to as neo Advaita, in which there's a strong emphasis on the point that, you know, if you look, you can't find any little nugget inside that you could identify as you. There's no person. It's, you just come down to kind of vast emptiness. And so people say, well, there is no me. There's just this vast emptiness. But what happens is, unfortunately, it creates in many people a, a problem and even sometimes mental illnesses of some kind. There's this fellow, Scott Kilby, who was going to be here at the conference, but his mother died, he had to leave. But he, we were going to sit down and have a whole discussion about the calls he gets on a regular basis from people who have become extremely disassociative or unbalanced mm. uh, because of their obsession with this notion, listening to teachings which tell them so, that they are not a person, or that right. there is no one home, yeah. uh, and that there's nothing to do, nowhere to go, and you're already there, and interrupt at any point. But um, Jeff Foster, illustrated this whole issue very delightfully in a little cartoon he made called the Neo Advaita Trap, which if you look on YouTube for that, you'll find it. I've watched that. You've watched I've actually, it. I've shared that with people. Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah. So do a search, folks, on Neo Advaita Trap and then pause this video, watch that one and come back. But anyway, go ahead. Well, first of all, I'll just say that, that characteristic of a lot of the um, more of mental pathologies is a disordered or a fragmented sense of self. And, you know, frankly, I'll just tell you that, that my early history with a lot of neglect and a lot of trauma and a lot of difficult experiences, mm -hmm. that was my experience. 
Prior so, to any spiritual pursuit. Prior to any had, spiritual. You, had, you came in there was There was a fragment. Of, I developed, perhaps, a fragment of sense of self. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's a little bit, I don't want to go too far astray on this topic, but when people have a lot of either trauma or attachment attachment difficulties in life, mm-hmm. they actually don't develop the full sense of self that people with a adequately integrated sense of self has, hmm. have. And what happens to those people is that they come into these teachings, which are not only teachings, but they're powerful fields of transmission, if you right. will. And these teachings affect them in a way that confirms something that they already know, that there's no self. Uh-huh. However, what it tends to bring up for them is because there's never been a stabilized sense of self is a very deficient and fragment, you know, a very deficient sense of self. Do you think that these teachings with such people further exacerbate the, the fragmentation? In other words, they could destabilize a person who, who hasn't achieved integration of self to begin with. Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I, I think I experienced it to a degree. So would you say that for some people, the emphasis in their growth should be about achieving uh, an integrated sense of self or whatever terminology you would use. In other words, building up the ego in a sense, rather than trying to kill or, or deny the ego. And then once a strong ego has been established, they might proceed from there. Yeah, I don't want to give you a a yes or no answer to that. I mean, I think every case is different. There was that famous quote for a while by Jack Somebody, the, uh, you can't be nobody until you're somebody. The idea being there that if you're just this kind of fragmented, free-floating, chaotic awareness, Mm -hmm. you know, with, with random perceptions and random ideas and nothing coherent or integrated about what you feel yourself to be in the first place, you're not going to be able to develop as an embodiment of being going forward just because you access some state of, of awareness or some state of deep peace or yeah. some state of emptiness. Yeah, I mean, in my spiritual upbringing, the emphasis was always on strengthening, integrating, stabilizing, purifying the physiology, you know, making it a fit instrument to sustain what we might even call the shock of awakening. Right. Because awakening can be so dramatic that you need a strong physiology. When I was, I was on a course one time with Marshy, and someone said, you know, Marshy, couldn't you just enlighten us? And he said, maybe I could. If I could, it would take 10 strong men to hold you down. Mm. You know, I mean, mm. you would just mm. be blown away yeah. without having established the, the neurophysiological capacity to embody that experience. Yeah, and you know, I, I think you can kind of say equivalent things about psychedelic drugs. You're giving yeah. people very powerful medicine, but if you're using those things in unskillful ways, what you're doing is you're opening people up to a lot of potential damage and a lot of potential strife for them. And so, in the same way that if, if you had somebody come into the room tonight that wasn't altogether stable, you gave them some LSD, mm-hmm. it might be very much the same thing to have somebody come into a satsang and just have them walk back out the door. It's very powerful medicine. Yeah. Well, you can tell us more about your spiritual background if you want to, but I know in my case, being on long courses, meditation courses for six weeks, six months, you know, 10 hours a day mm-hmm. of meditation and stuff, there were some tragedies, you know, there were some, I, I once had to go to a hotel in Switzerland mm. and mollify the staff after a woman had jumped off a balcony and killed herself. And I've heard of stories like this in other spiritual movements where under intense sadhana, intense spiritual practice, troubled personalities just crack. Yeah. Okay, so I will, I will move it back to my background. And basically my background was that my life through basically the intervention of my own shadow took a massive fall and in a sense a complete turn from everything it had been you know in my very early 30s in my late 20s to my early 30s and I found myself at that very deep sense of existential despair like what is all this what is my life who am I what is this what is the truth of everything and I began to go to Vipassana meditations actually I go into Vipassana meditations and that led me to Spirit Rock and then I was at the, some of the Theravadan monasteries so I began to practice very intensely the body orientated um, Vipassana practices for instance, when you go to a Goenka retreat, 
it's a very powerful practice. You go for 10 days. I mean, the first time I ever went to a Goenka retreat, I was walking around and I was, I was thinking, wow, this must be what it's like in purgatory. <laughs> Nobody was speaking to each other. You know, people were, people were walking around. It looked like a bunch of corpses walking around. People didn't look happy. Mm. You know, it was... It was it, it, zombified. It, yeah, it would look kind of zombified, mental hospital, purgatory. Shin Jin Young said that to me in my mm -hmm. interview. He says, in some aspects of Buddhism, and I don't keep them all straight, it zombifies people. They, they, they become very unnatural in their demeanor, their behavior. Yeah, and I think that you know all the all the different traditions have their pathologies that go along with them. So you go into this very deep place, and I had immediately very deep, profound experiences. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember after my very first Vipassana retreat, people were talking about, the, the men were talking about, all they were thinking about was the girls across the aisle. I was having these amazing, massive experiences of the body as this crystalline structure, and just on and on. And And I'm like... Really, you guys were thinking about girl. I, you know, I was thinking about like the nature of the universe. I was experiencing myself, perhaps, as the nature of the universe, in, in a particular way. And so then they just let you go. And then the ten days is over. They say, oh, "Okay, good luck. Good luck. Room. Practice two hours a day. Yeah. Good luck." And they say, "You know, don't do anything else. You, you want to keep it pure. Stay with this practice, yeah. right?" So I had that. After a while, that wasn't satisfactory. Mm -hmm. So I came into some of the non-dual teachings. I came into meeting Gangaji. I came into meeting Adyashanti. And really, after a while, I saw all of the non-dual teachers that were available to yeah. be seen. I had a little camper, and I would just drive from place to place to place through different states. And talks about states and stations. Mm -hmm. Through different states and seeing uh, every teacher that was available. And... I guess, you know, this would be a good point to say that at one point I sat down with a certain teacher and leading up to this point, I had never fasted in my life before, but I just had this sudden impulse to fast and I fasted for five days and I went to a weekend intensive with this teacher and I had this terrible feeling that something bad was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I was determined to go talk to this teacher and I waited through, there were a number of different number of different sessions and I waited till I think about the last session and then I said okay I'm gonna go do this so I sat in the front row and I was ready to raise my hand and I was overwhelmed with this sense of panic huh. and the panic was the fear that I was gonna get up and attack this teacher uh. this terrible overwhelming fear that I was gonna get up and attack this teacher yeah. and that people were gonna have to restrain me and that I was gonna be dragged off to prison you know just this but it was very visceral and so I raised my hand anyway Somehow, upon facing that fear and walking up there in that moment, and then meeting the teacher, and it was Gangaji, and looking in her eyes and feeling what my experience was, I felt as if a ray, a silver ray that had sound to it, moved down through my chakras, but all the way down through the bottoms of my feet. And I felt total stillness, silence, equanimity, peace, zero tension in the body and total equality with the other person that was sitting next mm -hmm. to me, which was Gangaji at the time. And even as I talk about it now, I can feel the stillness descend. I can feel the, the presence I can too, of the actually, stillness. As you talk about yeah. it, it evokes it. Yeah, and I think you know that's why language can be evocative. Language yeah. and gesture can be evocative. From that point, that was the departure from what had been in my life a very deep, almost conviction that I felt that I was a damned soul. Hmm. I mean, I felt that I was a damned, and I think, obviously, the fear that came up around raising my hand. Yeah. Not only that I was damned, that maybe I didn't even have a soul. And I'll tell you, that it, it's fairly easy to talk about now, but to be in a life, to live a life where you literally feel like you're damned and you don't have a soul, I mean, yeah. to have an inner conviction like that is incredibly painful. You know, we were talking on in the car on the way to the restaurant about the fact that enlightenment necessitates a transformation of the physiology even on the cellular level. I suppose this is the sort of thing that could probably be studied. But the point I'd like to make is that it really is a physiological thing as much as it is a consciousness thing. You know how scientists will tell you that waking, dreaming, and sleeping are each unique states of consciousness physiologically as well as subjectively. Well, higher states of consciousness are unique in the same way. They're not only different from one another and from waking, dreaming, and sleeping in a significant, marked way, but their physiological correlates are significantly different 
uniquely. So, to my way of understanding what evolution to enlightenment or whatever, we won't even bother to find enlightenment now, but spiritual mm -hmm. awakening, what it necessitates is a, a complete restructuring, not only of our way of perceiving and our, you know, our subjective orientation, but of the neurophysiology which is, yeah. which supports that. Sure. And yeah. this is this is really great. I hope I'm not cutting you off, but no. this is really beautiful because this is so important to our teaching. Teachings get out there and you know, Eckhart Tolle was one of the teachers that I studied with and I went on retreats with and whatnot and I love him. But somehow in the way that he teaches and some of the teachers teach, it's as if ego is just these kind of thoughts floating around in the mind. And if you can just kind of turn away from the thoughts floating around in the mind and see the awareness of the thoughts, see the space in which the thoughts arise, you'll be free of ego. Hmm. It goes e much deeper than that. Ego is grown into the body from the moment, probably, that we are even conceived. Mm -hmm. You know, because we know that we know that even in utero experiences have impact on, on what we become and how we are formed. So really traumatized ego, a really traumatized sense of self, you know, that gets wounded, that gets abused, that gets neglected through time, through time, that becomes conditioned in the body. Mm -hmm. And so, so too does a, a well cared for, what they call good enough care, that becomes conditioned in the body. So when we talk about embodiment, we're talking about exactly what you're, what you're saying here. Not only awakening to the state once or twice or many times over and over, but embodying that state by growing your body into the state of being. There has to be a transformation on the level of the cells and on the level of the neurons and the, the whole physiology. Then there are sort of a esoteric Eastern schools of thought which understand this in uh, great detail in their own terminology right. with all the nadis and the shishumna and the ida and the pingala and all this stuff that's supposed to, in the chakras and all this stuff that's supposed to go on in the physiology both subtle and gross in order for consciousness to be transformed and, and higher consciousness to be sustained. I'll tell you, you know, I mentioned that we used to go on these long courses the way it would work is we'd get there and start building up in the amount of meditation we'd do. Mm -hmm. Remember Dear Prudence, the song, how, how yeah. it went, look around, round, round. It was called rounding. And you'd, you'd meditate, you'd do asanas, you'd meditate, you'd do asanas, you'd, you'd build the amount, you did it until it was... I'm just touching my heart right now. I'm just yeah. stamped on my microphone. But it's just <laughs> touching my heart with you talking about this. Something about you talking about your dear prudence and your early times. Of, yeah. yeah. And, and so it would build up to the point where you're doing it from morning till night, you know, many hours. And if, for some reason, you had to leave abruptly in the middle of that, you came out like unmolded jello mm -hmm. into the world unable to, and, and all, all hell could break loose in your life. The Beatles left abruptly in the middle of their course, and, and George Harrison once said, I don't know what happened after India. Everybody's egos just went crazy. Mm. So the way we left properly was a month or so before it was time to leave, you start diminishing the amount of meditation you're okay. doing. Yeah. It, I mean, even in the height of it, going into town to buy a toothbrush would be like, whoa! Like, like you made the comparison to LSD or something. Yeah. You just couldn't handle the sensory input because you were so wide open. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. There was so much stuff going on. Yeah. And so there had to be this kind of gradual shutting down of the openness and integration of what had been, of the transformation that had been taking place. And then you go back home and for six months or so and just plunge into activity and then go back and do it again. Yeah, Always so you're there kind of, had to be the counterbalance right, of the integration. Right. Yeah, so you're, you're titrating and pendulating. It's a good time to bring in how wise the new understanding of trauma is and the understanding of trauma treatment is. Because we, we understand that we need cycles of regulation. We need to be kind to our physiology. We need to be kind to ourselves. So anyway, here we have this eclectic, diverse world of modern spirituality with all kinds of teachers teaching all kinds of things and all sorts of people and they're all arguing with each other on Facebook and <laughs> so it's kind of a mishmash but there's something exciting happening but I suppose what you're doing and what some other people are now starting to do is to bring in a much needed service or perspective to this whole process so that people just don't sort of waltz into it willy-nilly without proper preparation, without really knowing what they're doing, and end up uh, nutcases. You, you're trying to sort of help people. Don't let me put words in your mouth. What are you doing? Okay, good. Yeah, well, I'll, then I'll go back to my own case. So 
this awakening experience that I described, the Gangaji experience, the Gangaji experience, it opened worlds of experience that I could have never imagined. And you know, you've been meditating for a long time. You know how weird things can get. So I'm not going to go into all the details and all the gory parts of the awakening experience. But at some point after that happened, I really remained in a state of bliss and gratitude and love and joy and you know for for quite a long time even though I was having really really peculiar experiences. And I I think off and on for at least 6 months I was just in this, right? And then off and on for the next 2 or 3 years, you know, it was mostly that and then there was some kind of titrating into reality I wasn't working I was really driving around in my camper from retreat to retreat hmm. which was a lovely time but it came to a point where I needed to get back into the world yeah. I needed to go back to work the first thing that I found was that I was exquisitely sensitive so exquisitely sensitive and it was so it was traumatizing to come back into a world and be working and be in, in loudness when I'd been in the wilderness a lot yeah. the second thing I found is that Nobody really cared what my experience had been in the world. There was no commercial value to the awakening that I had. All the different beautiful experiences of awakening. So there was a sense of isolation in that. And then finally because I had to interact with people who didn't care or know about this, what I realized is that I kind of had to go back into my old structures in order to deal in the world. And my old structures were pretty dysfunctional. Mm. Somehow having changed so much couldn't you have rebuilt slightly new structures that wouldn't have been as dysfunctional as the old ones I think there was and certainly there was a change and I you know I think with people that do that have awakening experiences there are changes and there are things that are kind of that gracefully fall away and there are things that don't fall away and there are things that actually come back and revisit that seem to have fallen away What I ultimately found out is I didn't know who I was as a person I didn't know myself at all hmm. I had I had very little introspective sense of myself as Even after all that spiritual stuff. Yeah, because I had been basically what happened to me is the back doors opened. Mm. And I could go fly around in all the different dimensions of space and being and love and joy. I could just go fly around, but from the front forward there'd been no work done. Really no work. I mean almost very little work because everything was geared to being a lamp unto yourself. Now, I think that's Buddha's last teaching, right? Be a lamp unto yourself, which ultimately in one way it's very true. But when you take that teaching, when you take the teaching of Nisargadatta, which I saw actually pop up on a screen tonight that said, "Have the courage to never admit that you are anything other than the unbounded light of being." It's kind of the way he did it. He said, you know, "Right, my teacher told me that, and I believed him, and I just kind of focused on that for three years." I followed, you know, Nisargadatta's instruction in that, and what I found is that it made me a defensive person because then I couldn't admit to my personal flaws. I couldn't admit to my mm-hmm. personal. you know because then that seems somehow to be disloyal to the truth of my being which was so much more vast and big right. than all these little petty things yeah so here you have now a split and this is i think what what happens particularly in non-duality you get these split people so everybody around them can see these people aren't functioning at a high level maybe they're barely functioning at all yeah. but yet from their uh subjective point of view they're aligned they're awake they're done they're finished i've heard it said Uh, by some teachers or one in particular that this path of you know discrimination and always remembering that you are you know not a person or that you are the unbounded and it's actually not suited for the householder it's not suited for worldly life it's for the recluse who can just sort of engage in that contemplative discriminative activity without having to be very functional in any kind of worldly sense and that if householders try to do it it messes them up Well, I mean that's that's what happened to me. You know, I was able to drive around this camper, go to re- retreat to retreat, live out in the woods, and then I had to come back in the world. There there was no development in that area. Mm. And some people maybe have these experiences and have a pretty well-developed structure that they can go back into and gradually grow. If the structure really wasn't that well-developed or was pathological, it really wasn't my case. Then there wasn't anything to come back to and kind of work on. So all of a sudden everything had been cut out from under me. And I want to actually make the point now that I think it would be really just great. You have spiritual teachers out there and I mean even the ones that tend to be teaching in ways that we've talked about and we may not agree with, they're very insightful. They see people, they see things about people. And it would be really helpful 
if some of the teachers that do the big satsangs that have very little personal contact with people, since they can see people and have a feeling for where they're at, maybe make some recommendations. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe you could use some addiction help, or maybe you could use some cognitive therapy, or, you know, maybe Qigong would be good for you. Some of them probably some, do that, don't they? I've not seen it much. I mean, I've heard yeah. Ajay say, in some cases, maybe you need some therapy, or you need yeah. some, some And I, some I, that. I think that's a pretty new development. I, th mm -hmm. I think, you know, they, they've said it from time to time, what, back in the day, this was many years ago when they were first getting yeah. started. They're, those teachers have changed over time, too. Yeah. Ajay particularly. Mm -hmm. You know, he's deepened, and, and after watching his talk with Hamid Ali just a couple nights ago, that's a person who's profoundly grown. Yeah. Which goes to show that the person grows. Which he actually acknowledged in the talk. Of course. In fact, it was interesting what he said. It's worth quoting. He said, you know, awakening is a relatively easy thing. I mean, I, he said, I, I know hundreds of people who have awakened, but that's, in a sense, just the beginning. He said, then for the rest of your life, you're going to be integrating and refining or whatever other words he used. Yeah, and, and in the same talk, I think Hamid talked about the need to clarify so that you're actually kind of removing the, the inner obstacles, but also the need for development. And both, you know, they're, they're both sides of one coin. And really think, as a human being, we know, it's just common sense, there's no end to our development. Right. Even now we know from neuroscience that people are building, they're growing new brain tissue in their 90s. Yeah. Neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity. Yeah. Which points to an underlying basis of our consciousness is that it's incredibly resilient, mm -hmm. it's incredibly responsive, it's incredibly impressionable. It's actually a routine question that I ask, usually towards the end of every interview. It's, mm -hmm. it's sort of like, well, where do you go from here? What do you see developing? You know, where's the next horizon and all? And a lot of people say they don't know exactly, but most of them acknowledge that it still keeps unfolding. You know, it's an ever-deepening mystery. But the certain percentage of people, you know, when I ask that question, they, they look at me like I'm speaking Croatian or something. So, what more could there possibly be? You know, what could what could change? Yeah. This can never yeah. change. So, when you see that, what's your sense of the person when they're saying that? What's your sense of what's really going on there? Interviews with people who, when I ask that question, have always been a little frustrating and difficult for me because I feel like I'm not connecting in some way, mm -hmm. and I, I'm inclined to sort of debate them or try to find some angle in which I could convince them that there's more, okay. uh, but it's not necessarily my place to do so, but it, it makes for an interesting conversation, and it's usually not possible. You don't make headway. What's your sense of where they're at when they're, when they're saying that? Well, the people I'm kind of ha I have in mind are very clear and brilliant in a way. I can okay. think of two or three or four of them right now, and you know, very impressive, articulate, clear, kind of make an interesting impression. People kind of get a little bit wowed out by them. Yeah. I've always found it frustrating. And, well, in terms of where they're at, I, I sort of feel like they're at a way station having, thinking that they're at the, the final destination, if there ever is one. It's funny because when I started doing this, I, I wasn't really aware of what the whole non-dual world was about or the whole spiritual scene in general. Mm. I'd pretty much been doing my own thing. And so when I started interviewing people, I started encountering these things and having to learn about the different perspectives. And I found myself repeating over and over again a Tibetan proverb which goes, don't mistake understanding for awakening, don't mistake awakening for liberation because I felt that a lot of the people I was talking to mm. had mesmerized themselves with an understanding and hadn't even arrived at what I would consider to be awakening. And then there are others who had definitely arrived at some kind of experiential awakening and were kind of feeling like this was it, what more could there be? But I felt from what I know that there must be more. But I'm not some kind of guru or master mm. or teacher, so I don't really have the tools right, to right. say, okay, here's what you need to do next. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's interesting because I, I think one of the capacities that I've always had, and I think it was, you know, I can even see it have, having come in from my childhood, mm -hmm. was the capacity to see into people in a certain way, mm. to see their structures in a certain way, mm -hmm. and their holdings in a certain way. And before I was able to develop that capacity, it was very difficult for me, and I ended up just judging people a lot. Mm. You know, but when I was able to work through the judgment of people and start to come to, really, and this is, I think it's really important to bring in the heart awakening. Mm. When my heart began to awaken, not only awaken in 
this is extremely important, not only awaken in a non-personal, vast sense of heart opening, where you know that everything's composed of love, you feel the light of love resonating in everything, but in a very personal way, a very personal, compassionate love that was able to see that each coping mechanism, each adaptation, as has been talked about by Gabor Mate, each adaptation and each defense mechanism was ultimately a deep desire of the organism to live, a deep and honorable thing for a human being and very intelligent thing for a human being to do. So honoring the defenses. And as I, as I came into honoring the defenses and I started to see them in people, it's, it's like a kind of a reading of the body energy of people, but I could actually read their body by feeling it in my body. It's interesting. Yeah. Imani was saying that today when I interviewed her. Okay. She can kind of use her own body as a tuning fork or something, or a, yeah. you know, an instrument to, to detect what's going on in somebody else's. Yeah, another teacher was talking about that today, hmm. I believe. Um, I'll just take a moment and settle down a little bit. Just coming back to what's important here. So what's important about that is that when I hear people saying, there's nobody here, there's no, I see the defense in it. I see the defensiveness there. And I honor that, you know, I honor, okay, that's, that's where you need to be, that's where you need to be in this place. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the only breath of fresh air they've, they've really ever had in their lifetime. Okay, so breathe there for a while, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, it's a resting place. Yeah, like, sure, yeah. sure. I wonder if it's an, a necessary resting place, though, because uh, it may just be that, you know, these ardent spiritual seekers, they really want to get going on this thing, and they start reading books and going to teachers, yeah. and that's what they hear, and so that's somehow where they arrive. But perhaps if they had encountered more skillful teachers, they wouldn't have had to get to that particular way station. They could have kept moving beyond it and stayed integrated the whole time. That may be. I mean, again, I think it's something, there's a lot of different ways to see that and interpret that. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, there are now teachers that teach embodiment. And the reason I wanted to do this interview with you, what's important to me about doing this interview, is to mm -hmm. say that we are here you have these awakenings, we want to validate and verify these awakenings, first of all, not just send you off to deal with them and figure them out. And we want to say, okay, you know, we understand that, we understand where you're at, we understand this sense that you're just, there's just this empty vehicle in which everything is just moving and occurring and happening. But let's find out more about it, let's learn more about ourselves, let's, let's discover more, let's continue the exploration, and let's do it in a kind and supported way in which you're safe. So it almost sounds like you're saying there could be two specialties. One is the waker-uppers and the other is the embodiers. Frankly, it's great that you say that because in a, in a way there are yeah. already. So there, I think there could also be and probably are teachers who, who have both specialties under their hood. There, there are. Yeah. yeah. And if you do embodiment right, mm -hmm. it's a natural process of waking up. Right. If you learn to come into contact. All the way along the path. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you don't have to get totally disembodied and then re-embodied. You can kind of take it step by step and keep it balanced. Yeah, so you wake up through the body. Right. Yeah. You Here you are up in Humboldt County. Are you mainly working with people remotely over Skype and we, stuff? We, I work with people over Skype. I work with people, you know, in the area. We've got a group of... Humboldt County is an amazing place, and we've got, we've got a group of people that attend our workshops and, and our retreats, and then people that come and work with me. Um, Christine also teaches yoga. Christine Fiorentino, my partner, mm -hmm. is a co-founder of, as I said, I think, of co being real, being embodied. Mm -hmm. I should say my website now, too, just being real, in case being you, My website is actually beingrealnow.org, uh -huh. beingrealnow.org. And do a lot of people are you just getting started with this? You've been doing this for a while. We've been doing it for a few years up there. I've been seeing, I actually started seeing private clients. I, I have a background in body work as well. So I started, I started with a practice somewhere near 15 years ago that I called whole body awakening. Uh -huh. So that was always my sense that there was something to this body aspect of the awakening. Even when I was kind of more disassociated with the awakenings I was having, there was some sense of the need to, to bring it into and through the body. That was a resonant truth all the way through. And so through that time, I've, I've worked with people individually, and yeah, now it's been a few years we've, we've been doing the groups. Mm -hmm. And what I see is, even in rarely talking about awakening or enlightenment or even using the word ego, mm -hmm. what I see is in teaching people to connect with themselves and teaching people to contact with themselves and in giving people a safe, supported place to open, 
people flower. Hmm. People open up. But they don't just flower by realizing the impersonal majesty of reality, which is really true. And I, I don't want to give that short shrift because the impersonal majesty of reality is profound, as you know. Sure. And even just like, again, when I say it, I feel that I can feel yeah. vibrating in my feet. I can feel the, the pure, like, the pure life energy, the joy of that. But also that they learn to be real human beings. They, they learn to be human beings in contact with other human beings. And I, I said this to you in the car, I was going to bring this up. I am infatuated with the possibility of enlightened relationship. Sure. Like a real enlightened relationship. Mm -hmm. Wow. You mean like romantic or all kinds of friendships? Everything. Yeah. 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 What, what a, How about an enlightened society? <laughs> yeah. Well, good. So let's start here right now. What's yeah. it like? You know, like we're here together. What's good about what's important? What's real about us being here together now? Uh, well, we're both very tired. That is true. That is true. <laughs> but what, let me just say, yeah. I sense a light in you. I sense something of your soul. I sense a sweetness of your soul. I love the child, and I've watched you many times. I love the childlike curiosity and openness that you have. Yeah, so as far as enlightened relationship is concerned, remember there was a Steppenwolf song called Goddamn the Pusher, and there was a line that said, I've seen a lot of people walking around with tombstones in their eyes. Yeah. That referred to heroin, but there are a lot of people walking around in whom you don't see that light that you're referring to. Yeah. I was one of those people, but... Well, you just said you were one of those people? Oh, yeah, sure, back in the old days. Yeah. You know, pretty cloudy, pretty muddled, pretty mixed up. And relationship, since you brought up that topic, was a total mess. And I think the reason is that I didn't know who the heck I was, or what I was. And so how can someone who's completely unaware of what they are interact meaningfully with others who are in the same condition? You know, both are in a kind of a clouded, occluded state. Sure. And the, the whole world, in large part, I mean, we don't mean to be holier than thou here, but by definition, if, if we read spiritual books and all, ignorance, as it's usually referred to, yeah. a lack of enlightenment, is the common condition of humanity. Yeah. And it doesn't take a great stretch of the imagination to see why that, that, that is so, if you look at what we've been doing to each other all these centuries and millennia, and are still doing today. Yeah. And, you know, it's always my hope that a more enlightened society would be one free of war and free of environmental destruction and all the other yucky stuff mm. that happens in our world. And I think that's entirely possible. If it, if it can be achieved on a one-to-one -one level, there's no reason why it can't be achieved on a national level, on an international level, and so on, if enough. Yeah. yeah. It's like the old analogy, if, if you want to see a green forest, you have to make in each individual tree healthy. You can't spray paint the forest with green or any other such thing. No. Each tree has to be nourished from its roots and become a green, healthy tree, and then you'll have a, a, the entire forest will be green. Until that happens, the forest is going to be all gray and withered. Get the analogy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I do. So, how do we do that? Well, I think it's kind of happening. You know, I was talking to Mirabai Starr's mother last night, and she was saying, She's almost 80 years old and she still travels all over the place and full of life and, and she was down in Mexico recently, living in Mexico, and she said there are all these little pockets of spiritual clusters of people forming and kind of organically, naturally, spontaneously forming. Mm -hmm. And I said, do you mean like Americans coming down to hang out in Mexico and be spiritual? She says, no, no, just the local people. There's something waking up in the society there. And I bet you you'd find that all over the world. I think you do find that all over the world. I kind of see it with this show and the people who are watching it all over the world and the, the people they interact with and so on. Yeah, you have a map, don't you? Yeah, I the do. Little, I have yeah. a map on the website. You can yeah. see all the little red dots. Where yeah, that's very cool. And so... So you see it happening, but even as we're here now, is there a way that we could... Accelerate. Is there a way that we could just, you and I here right now, is there something... We're doing a it. way that we can tap we're into. We're having this conversation and we're recording it and we're oh putting it out there. <laughs> and it's, it's making a contribution to, to this yeah. awakening. But even as we're talking now, I think there's even opportunity to realize deeper contact with ourselves, to realize, like, wow, what it, what is it really going on here that we're talking? What's what's really the meaning of our, of our two beings sitting here, our parent two beings sitting here? Well, I'm not entirely sure what you're getting at. What are you getting at? Let's see. 
What is the meaning of it? Is there some esoteric meaning we're looking for? I mean, we're having this conversation about uh, a topic that's uh, germane and important yeah. in our own lives yeah. and in the lives of the types of people who tend to watch this show. And our hope is that if people have gotten into trouble on the spiritual path or have found their life becoming somewhat dysfunctional as a result of spirituality, whereas they had hoped it would improve, then maybe something is missing. It could be that something can be offered to um, remedy the situation, yeah. which is what you're doing with this thing. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, by That's the way. Right. I was just, what I'm curious about is, are we connected in the most real way that we can be right now? You and I? Yeah. I mean, just as an open question, not as with any judgment or anything. I know, there is, there is that. <laughs> we're, both, we're both quite tired, but you know, just seeing that, yeah. are we connected in the most real way that we can be connected? And I mean that as like a prayer. You know, yeah. because I want to keep it particular to us, but also I want to say that can we live with a kind of a prayer like that? Or when we walk, whether the person has tombstones in their eyes or whether the person's a lovely, inquisitive, mm -hmm. and curious, can we walk with that question? Are we connected in the truest way right now that we can be connected? I sort of feel like when we're actually in the world interacting, certainly there are things you can do to be a better person as on the fly, as you go. But it's almost like there, there also should be preparatory time, you know, some, some sort of deep diving into silence and tapping the, the source of life. So you, you need to have touched that in yourself first. It's, that's been my way of going about mm -hmm. it. I mean, it's like, let's say you, you never took showers and then you're out among people and you think, Am I being as clean as I could be right now? Well, it's too late to think about it. You should have okay. taken a shower in the morning. So what if we, and then you would be cleaner, and when you wouldn't have to think about it throughout yeah. the day, there would be a sort of a natural state of greater cleanliness. So I guess this would be where I start to, to come into the kind of point of consciousness that is conscience, that isn't thought-orientated, it's heart-driven, you know? That, it's, that, that where questions from the mind come into the heart and become way that we live our lives with these kind of open questions about yeah. not like how can I be, become a better person or how can I save the planet or even how can I make a more enlightened society but just with this kind of sweetness of heart that just looks to another person and has an inherent question in it of how can I know the truth of this person? Mm. The same way that we need to look at ourselves and how can I know the truth of this person? Mm -hmm. How could I, you know, and so and I put my hands, I'm careful of the microphone. Yeah. Don't want to cover it up. But how can I know the truth of this person? Well, how do you answer that question to you, for yourself? The practice of, and, and I actually do put my hands and I teach people to put their hands on themselves. And the, as a start, the practice of coming into deeper contact with our embodied experience. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole array of things that we can do with that. But this process of coming into deeper contact and deeper contact essentially brings the body into a sense of knowing itself as being. And so is this something you do throughout the day as you, as you go along? Tuning in, being in deeper contact with yourself? I would say so, yeah. I, okay. I would say, and so you could you could say that that's a practice, yeah. you know. And I would say it's a practice that's not seeking. It's a practice that's a flow of love. It's a practice that it's an yeah. that it's an outflowing of the love of knowing that our being is truth, that knowing that our being is love, and wanting every bit of our being to be an expression of that love. Hmm. You were at the other end of the table tonight, but someone at dinner to my left was was saying something along these lines that there's. A, a kind of a, a constant discrimination that functions to kind of keep things in balance and check. Uh, there's all these energies and levels and, and dimensions to our to our being, and there's a sort of a discriminative faculty that keeps them kind of holistically coordinated in her mm. experience. Sort of a self-referral, self-reflective mm -hmm. quality. Which, you know, if you think about it, is very germane to the question you raised. People who commit all kinds of nasty crimes aren't being terribly self-reflective or self-referral. You know, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. Truth, They're yeah. just blindly yes. plunging into this, that, or the other Trying to get a need met. Without a whole lot of discernment or reflection. Trying to get a need met. So when you see somebody, obviously, if they're trying to kill you, get the hell out of there, right? Yeah. But when you see somebody and they're kind of 
doing something unskillful or they're doing something unconscious, we can move from, oh, geez, they're a bad person or they're unskillful or whatever, into, oh, wow, look at that person's trying to get a need met in doing what they're doing. But coming back to what you said, and I, wasn't, I, I would have liked to hear that discussion at the end of the table, we have multitudes of capacities. Yeah. The capacity that you're talking about sounds like an integrative capacity, mm -hmm. a, a capacity that integrates all kinds of different levels and capacities. Yeah, it kind of, of integrates and regulates and coordinates. Yeah. yeah. So that's interesting. So we've just been talking about like two ways of going about it, and I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, which is you know, having some time to dive deep, and also having done that, as going throughout your day with a greater sense of sensitivity and, and discernment and reflection and self-referral and so on. Which is kind of a heart process again. Yeah, which, heart, a, which can be a conscious, a intentional thing as it opposed can, to just a quality that you naturally are endowed with. Yeah, and like driving a car or playing an instrument, that becomes an embedded process within you. Yeah. So that feeling deeply doesn't take practicing it, it comes naturally. It just mm -hmm. it just becomes a way of being. So the the state becomes the station. Well a few minutes. So what you got some points on here? I have? do have some points. I you know I don't I'm feeling now I'm feeling pretty satisfied where, without having to try to run through a bunch of points. There's one thing that I brought up in the panel discussion the other night that you said you might want to talk about and there was a term for it that I forget but it was a sort of like a, All right. you know guru yeah. on the pedestal syndrome oh, yeah. of this yeah. person they seem so high and mighty they must be perfect everything they do every word they speak must be true every action even though it seems weird and crazy there must be some kind of cosmic purpose for it, that kind of thing. What was that term you used? Good. Well, I'll actually, I'll use that as a little vehicle to get back to my own journey because I did seek different help for what I was going through and found some that was helpful, mm -hmm. but ultimately found my way into the diamond approach. Right. And there I've been for many years. And one term the diamond approach uses is the idealizing transference. Idealizing transference. Yeah. So you idealize the teacher. Yeah. And what do you transfer? You're transferring all the inner qualities of your being, or certain inner qualities of your being, but particularly the grand and beautiful mm -hmm. dimensions and qualities of your being onto this teacher. Mm -hmm. And in you know common sense parlance, it's called giving away your power. Mm -hmm. But in this sense, it's giving away your being. It's giving away the greatness of your being. And so how would you contrast that with sort of a healthy respect and even reverence in a devotional relationship with a teacher yeah. who is deserving of reverence? The way that I see it, mm -hmm. I would contrast it by saying that the individual has a really impeccably clear sense of who they are and meaning who they are in not only the, the pers person sense, but in the sense of their being. Like for instance, when you're, uh, you go to see Amici, I go to see Amici sometimes. Mm -hmm. When we see somebody like that, mm -hmm. we marvel. It's beautiful, kind of bow, you know. And I'm not going to become a hugging saint. I'm guessing you won't, right? Traveling around the world, hugging thousands or yep. millions of people. We recognize that as our own being, in a sense, doing that. We recognize that as a celebration of our own being that's not separate from us or above us. And that comes back to the point, my very earliest realization with Gangaji there, who can be quite idealized, right? My very first realization sitting there with her looking in her eyes is total equality, mm. total equality of being. So maybe there's something about realizing the total equality of being. Even beings that do great things, there's a total equality of being. With I get that with Amma. I mean, I'm, I'm this close to her, you know, and, and about to be hugged or just having been hugged or whatever, right. and I'm looking in her eyes and there's just this oneness, natural. Uh, natural, yes. Yeah, natural. Yeah. I'm not yeah. in awe or anything. It's just the most natural, intimate it's, kind of situation yeah. you can imagine. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't mean I have her capacity for radiating, you know, divine energy or all the other stuff she does. You're uh, evoking well, in me again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling it as you're talking about <laughs> but, it. But uh, I could start whispering in your ear. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, there's that sort of recognition on the level of being that we're one and the same. You know? Okay, beautiful. And yeah. she says that from her side, you know, when she comes out on the stage. Yeah. And, 
And the Gita says it. You see the self in all beings, and all beings in the self. You know, because the self is all-inclusive totality and contains everything. So, with that as one's perspective, then one will be probably less inclined to see a, a guru as some kind of high and mighty being that's impeccable and, and uh, to discard one's judgment and common sense in some cases. They're projecting their own grandiosity as well. Yeah. You know, so, you know, it's a stage, actually. The understanding is that it's a stage that, that people go through yeah. in certain situations, and then it's not a bad thing or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, it's a stage. What you're talking about, that's a certain realization. The, the total equality of being right there is, yeah. a, is a certain realization. And till that realization comes, when you get into a relationship like that, essentially what's happening is you're, you're dealing with somebody who is you know, even called the mother, you're dealing with somebody who is an idealized perfect parent and you are a little child. The devotees call themselves the children. Yeah, she, right? she calls them the children, right. my children, and yeah. so on, my, my daughter, daughter, son, son. And it's, it's lovely in its sense, mm -hmm. but I would say that what we need is also mature adult embodied being yeah. as human beings walk on the planet. Not necessarily children who are abdicating something to what the guru says or you know and this is well, like this is say, a more a western stage, way you know it, it is yeah. a stage i, I think I'm a, but a lot of people stay in that stage just as do. a lot of people stay in certain stages in non-duality this is we're talking about ama i mean she tries to dispel some of that i think by yeah. going out and digging ditches and picking up garbage and yeah. carrying bricks on her head and stuff yeah it like seems that. pretty balanced and after yeah. after 18 yeah. hours of hugging people hmm. she, you know really literally she she's 18 hours in yeah. calcutta non-stop yeah. hugging then the next three, four hours out cleaning garbage off the streets. That has happened on a number of occasions. Um, maybe we're getting off on the tangent, but I think some gurus are more inclined than others to try to level the playing field and, and make others realize that they too are just a person and yeah. you know, don't need to own eight, 20, 94 Rolls Royces. <laughs> I'm not speaking disparagingly of uh, Amma's devotees in any way, so I just yeah. want to say that. But. I, again, what I want to say is that we need really mature human beings. Yeah. We deeply need mature human beings who are willing to stand in their own responsibility, mm -hmm. the own responsibility of their beingness. Well, there are so many different kinds of teachers and teachings and practices. And that's one particular scene, you know, yeah. which is not for everybody. Yeah. No one scene is for everybody. Right. And people are naturally going to gravitate toward what fits for them and go through different stages and phases and whatnot. And, so it all kind of sorts itself out. Over the past four years since I've been coming to this conference, it seems to me that there has been a, a real kind of um, upsurge in interest in what we're talking about here, embodiment, integration, and also a more universal recognition that we're all bozos on this bus and that there, there's an infinite range of, of possibility for further growth and maturation. Teachers who didn't used to say that are now saying it very explicitly. So maybe they've learned it through their own experience. Yeah, and even like Ajay, like, yeah, like you said. Yeah, them saying it last yeah. night, Ajay yeah. and Hamid. I would say I felt a little sad now because I felt like I, I didn't want to say something about uh, about Alma or her devotees because yeah. I have a, a lot of respect and, and reverence for her. Mm -hmm. But That's also a devotional scene, and devotion yeah. has its own flavor and, and its own kind of appropriate structures. And yeah, and each, it does, each it, it thing does has need its, to be some duality yeah, for devotion yeah. to take. And I think I think what we're seeing though is I think I went to see Ram Das when I was eight years old with my dad, and you know a lot of the Indian religions were coming over here whole cloth. And now what I think we're seeing is that we're taking what's of value from them, taking the transmission of value from them, and mm -hmm. owning them in our Western cultures. Yeah. In my conversation with Mirabai last night, Mirabai Star, she was saying that she felt like the time is coming when religion will pretty much be a thing of the past, but mm. we won't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There will be a paring down or a shucking of the unnecessary husks and, and junk that has accreted mm. onto the structures of religion over, over time, and what will be left with will be the, the essential useful stuff that perhaps she kind of sees a uh, kind of a global interspirituality taking place in which people will appreciate as she has all of these different traditions, yeah. get the best of them, but not be kind of restricted to anyone. And I guess we're, I'm really going off on a tangent with this point, but... If the truth for somebody is that it's time 
to come back into the person, if the truth for somebody is that I know there's more development here, I know there's more growth here, that's what we're doing here as embodiment workers. Yeah. And if the truth is, you know, I've had a lot of amazing awakening experiences mm -hmm. and I know they need to be integrated, that's what we're doing. As By you, you mean you guys? Yeah. The I mean us, and I think the people that I've met that are, right. are truly working in embodiment. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, the camera's almost out of memory, so let's make some wrap-up points and conclude yeah. it. What do you think? Sure, let's make wrap-up points. Okay. Can you just make a map out of thin air? Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> so we've rambled a bit, and we're admittedly a little tired, but this is a topic that we feel is important and wanted to discuss, and uh, I'm sure there'll be other such discussions as time goes on. So takeaway points that people can take with them now, practical conclusions that they can sort of the remember cool at the yeah, end of this good. interview and do something with. Okay, yeah, let's do some practical stuff. Practically, get into your body. Do whatever it takes to get into your body. I mean, the very simple practical points are get your diet online. Find out if you've got a little baby that's always wanting to stand in the refrigerator and gobble up little sweet things. Find out what's going on. We'll find out what's truth about that. Don't beat yourself up about that or ridicule yourself. Get your diet in line. Understand your animal drives. Understand your animal impulses. Start to understand what this animal needs, as in the Mary Oliver line, you don't have to be good. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. <laughs> so let's love the animal of our body. Let's come back into, let's, let's throw off the strictures of, of self-mortification and let's come back into loving the bodies. Yeah. Not in a, you know, a 60s they don't sit in front of computers. They so get they, some they, exercise. That That's right. They get some exercise. And we have, we have uh, a lot of different ways to get exercise. And there's a lot of lovely uh, martial movements and, mm -hmm. you know, Tai Chi, Qi Gong, so forth. Mm -hmm. Work on your relationships. Work on your relationships from your heart. Get help. Ask people for help. And when you ask people for help, find people that you trust and feel good about. Feel safe. When you go see somebody, check out if you feel safe. If you feel safe and you're with that person, go forward. If you don't, if red flags come up for you, if you're being asked to do things or if you're being asked to abdicate your power in a way that feels uncomfortable, get out of there. Just get out. Make a heartfelt commitment to your love of truth. Love the truth of being more than anything else. So instead of like trying to annihilate everything that stands in the way of your loving the truth of being, just love the truth of being more than anything else. And I think that essentially, uh, you know, I, I could probably come up with a lot more bullet points. That's a good one, because that one subsumes a lot of stuff. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and all else shall be added unto thee. Principle the highest first. If you love the truth of being more than anything else, all the other stuff kind of falls into line. It does, and it means that you're willing to face whatever difficulty. You know, people talk a lot in these embodiment traditions about allowing, allowing everything to be here. Yeah. It means that you're willing to face whatever is needed to be faced. You know, whatever is difficult in yourself or in your life situation. It means you're willing to take the steps that you need to take in your life, however difficult that may be. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's uh, leave him wanting more, as P.T. Barnum said. All right. Um, so thanks for uh, listening to this, two tired old fogies uh, <laughs> rambling on about things that interest them. <laughs> Probably people who are watching this, 99% of them will have watched other things on thatgap.com and they'll know what it is and, and you know what to do and all that stuff. But just in case there's some newbies, I just want to explain that this discussion is part of an ongoing series of interviews of which there are already over 250 and they're all archived at batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. They're also on YouTube, of course. You can subscribe on YouTube. YouTube will notify you when new ones get posted. But if you come to Batgap, then you'll find more things such as a place to sign up to be notified by email, a link to an audio podcast, various types of indexes or indices of past interviews, donate button, discussion forum, bunch of things there and we have as time allows we have all kinds of interesting plans for making the site an even more exciting resource for people for instance i have this idea for a page which would be sortable by the user whereby they could see what's happening in london 
and immediately get a list of all the teachers and, and events that are happening mm. in London, chronologically sorted. Mm. Or they could say, what is Adyashanti up to? And automatically get a list of all his events. So you could sort it by different criteria like mm. that. Uh, that's just one idea. There's, all kind, there's no end to ideas. It's just a matter of time. It's an ongoing project, and I hope you'll continue to participate. Thanks, Rick. Thanks, Dee. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you. Well, thank you. Appreciate you, too. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun doing this. Yeah.